Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. I'm glad you joined us today. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we spend our time and what to think and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill the gaps in their day with worthwhile things like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So hopefully today in this time together, we will get a new perspective of how to think and live better. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and subscribe so you get each podcast as it's released each week. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about this simple fact, it's your turn. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, known nowadays by his initials JFK, was the 35th president of the United States. And at the time, he was the youngest president to ever serve in office. Prior to his presidency, he represented Massachusetts in both houses of Congress. He was born into prominence. The Kennedy family had long been involved in politics. In 1884, Patrick Kennedy became the first Kennedy elected to public office serving in the Massachusetts State Legislature. And from that point on, at least one Kennedy family member seemed to be serving in elected office at any point in time. JFK's father, Joseph, made a large fortune in the stock market and as a commodity investor, and he later invested his profits in real estate and a wide range of businesses across the United States. He was an executive at Bethlehem Steel, where he met Franklin D. Roosevelt. President Roosevelt appointed him to be the first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and later as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Kingdom. Joseph's son, John, attended a prestigious boarding school in Connecticut. He was plagued by ill health, which was believed to be leukemia. But John would go on to attend Harvard University and then the Stanford Graduate School of Business. By the fall of 1963, then-President John F. Kennedy and his political advisors were preparing for the next presidential campaign. And although he had not formally announced his candidacy, it was clear that President Kennedy was going to run, and he seemed confident about his chances for re-election. To win, Texas would be a huge win for the Democrats, so his team began to strategize how to court the Texas vote. And it was decided that Mrs. Kennedy would accompany JFK on a swing through Texas. This would be her first extended public appearance since the loss of their baby, Patrick, in August. On November 21st, the president and first lady departed on Air Force One for the two-day five-city tour of Texas. JFK seemed to relish the prospect of leaving Washington, getting out among the people and into the political fray, so to speak. Well, on arrival in Dallas, the First Lady received a bouquet of red roses, which she brought with her to the waiting limousine. There, Governor John Connolly and his wife, Nellie, were already seated in the open convertible as the Kennedys entered and sat behind them. And since it was no longer raining, the plastic bubble top had been left off. Vice President and Mrs. Johnson occupied another car in the motorcade. The procession left the airport and traveled along a 10-mile route that wound through downtown Dallas on the way to the trademark where the president was scheduled to speak at a luncheon. 
Crowds of excited people lined the streets, waving to the Kennedys. The car turned off Main Street at Dealey Plaza around 12.30 p.m. As it was passing the Texas School Book Depository, gunfire suddenly reverberated in the plaza. Bullets struck the president's neck and head. He slumped over toward Mrs. Kennedy. The governor was then shot in his back. Upon realizing that the governor and president had been shot, the presidential limousine sped off to Parkland Memorial Hospital just a few minutes away. But little could be done for the president. An autopsy would reveal that Kennedy was hit by two bullets. One entered his upper back and exited below his neck. The other bullet struck him in the back of the head and exited the front of his skull, leaving a large exit wound. The trajectory of the latter bullet was marked by bullet fragments throughout his brain. The examiners, however, couldn't find a bullet inside his body, and it was later determined that the second bullet had fragmented and was lost, and the first was worked out of the body during cardiac massage at the hospital. Well, at the time of the shooting, the Kennedys were riding in an open limousine containing three rows of seats. The Kennedys were in the rear seat of the car. The governor and his wife were in the middle row, and Secret Service agents were in the front seat. Kennedy was waving to the crowds on his right when a shot entered his upper back and exited his throat just beneath his larynx. He raised his elbows and clenched his fists in front of his face and neck, then leaned forward and leftward. Mrs. Kennedy, facing him, put her arms around him. Although a serious wound, it would likely have been survivable. However, the second shot then hit Kennedy in the head, and his body slumped forward. Mrs. Kennedy, in shock and dismay, started to exit towards the back of the car. Clinton Hill was working as a Secret Service agent and was standing on the step side of the follow-up car behind the Kennedys. When the shots rang out, he ran from his car, leapt onto the back of the presidential limousine, and shielded Jacqueline Kennedy and the stricken president. At the same time, Mrs. Connolly pulled her husband down on her lap after he was hit by a bullet. Agent Kellerman in the front seat of the car gave orders over the car's two-way radio to get to the nearest hospital quick. Hill was shouting as loudly as he could, to the hospital, to the hospital. But en route to the hospital, Hill flashed a thumbs-down signal and shook his head from side to side at the agents in the follow-up car, signaling the graveness of the president's condition. He would later testify, the right rear portion of the president's head was missing. It was lying in the rear seat of the car. His brain was exposed. There was blood and bits of brain all over the entire rear portion of the car. Mrs. Kennedy was completely covered with blood. There was so much blood, you could not tell if there had been another wound or not, except for the one large gaping wound in the right rear portion of his head. Well, the car arrived at the emergency room at the hospital. The physician soon saw that survival was impossible and the president was pronounced dead a Catholic priest was summoned to administer last rites. Though seriously wounded, Governor Connolly would recover. Well, unbeknownst to the Secret Service, Lee Harvey Oswald, an ex-Marine who had been court-martialed twice, a communist who had defected to and lived in Russia, had moved back to the United States and gotten a job at the Texas School Book Depository in Dallas. That morning, he had come to work carrying a long package. He told his fellow workers it was curtain rods, but inside there was really a rifle. Months earlier, Oswald had attempted to assassinate retired U.S. General Edwin Walker 
but was never caught. On the day of the shooting at noon, Oswald had been seen on the sixth floor of the depository, which was on the route the president's motorcade would follow. And immediately following the shooting, Oswald boarded a city bus, then took a taxi cab to his house. At 1.15 p.m., a Dallas police officer drove his police car alongside Oswald, who had left his house and was walking down Beckley Avenue. The police officer stopped Oswald, and Oswald shot him four times. Police later apprehended Oswald trying to hide in a crowded, dark theater. Not many days later, Oswald was scheduled to be transferred from police headquarters to the county jail. Viewers across America watch on live television as suddenly a man aimed a pistol and fired at point-blank range and killed Oswald. The assailant was identified as Jack Ruby, a nightclub owner, and Oswald died two hours later at the hospital. Well, back on the day of the assassination with the Secret Service at the airport after the shooting, they were concerned about the possibility of a larger plot against the government and urged Lyndon Johnson to leave Dallas and return to the White House. However, Johnson refused to do so without proof of Kennedy's death. Johnson returned to Air Force One about 1.30, and shortly thereafter, he received a telephone call confirming Kennedy's death, and again, he was advised to leave immediately. But he replied that he would not leave Dallas without Jacqueline Kennedy, and she would not leave without Kennedy's body. The president's body then was brought to Love Field and placed on Air Force One, and before the plane took off, a grim-faced Lyndon B. Johnson stood in the tight, crowded compartment of the plane and took the oath of office, administered by U.S. District Court Judge Sarah Hughes. The brief ceremony took place at 2.38 p.m. Well, you may remember the famous photo of Mrs. Kennedy with JFK's blood still on her clothes, standing dazed beside Johnson as he took the oath. Jackie had arrived back at Air Force One, thinking Johnson had already departed for Washington, only to find him making plans for the transition. Asked if she wanted to change out of her blood-stained clothes, she refused, saying, let them see what they have done to him. Now, volumes of books about JFK's death have been written. And tragic as it was, a much smaller amount of writing has been done about Johnson's accession. What did he do in those first few weeks in office? How would he step up to his turn as president? Well, taking up Kennedy's legacy, Johnson declared that no memorial oration or eulogy could be more eloquent or honor President Kennedy's memory more than the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill for which Kennedy had fought so long. The wave of national grief following the assassination gave enormous momentum to Johnson's legislative agenda and he issued an executive order renaming NASA's Launch Operations Center the Kennedy Space Center to honor JFK's vision of reaching the moon. These and other moves by Johnson allowed him to later win re-election. Now, the speed at which a new president is sworn in following the passing of a previous president may seem extreme, and maybe it is. But imagine if the presidential office stayed in limbo for months or years, the vice president didn't move into office for a time, clarity would diminish, faith in the government would erode, and decision-making would become cloudy. And this is true for you and me as well. 
When important people move on from our life or important jobs, work, or circumstances change in our life, maybe we need to step up to a new turn, to our turn, which gives us clarity and faith and good decision-making more than ever before. And what I've noticed, though, is that some of us don't step up. We don't see ourselves as a successor. We don't see it as our turn. You know, years ago, I heard an amazing speech by a very good leader entitled, It's Your Turn. His point was this, that in life, you and I, due to whatever circumstance, get a few chances, a few opportunities to step up and say, it's my turn. It's my turn to give all I have to secure my financial future. It's my turn to take a risk and do something I've been watching others do, but haven't had the confidence to do myself. It's my turn to let my talents be known. It's my turn to be brave. It's my turn to step up to what life has been calling me to do. Now, maybe you're a parent and for whatever reason, you haven't fully invested in the important relationships around you. It's your turn. Perhaps you've been working your business and for whatever reason, you see others as higher executives, but you don't see yourself that way. Well, it's your turn. And I expect right now in your life, if you're like me, there's something in front of you that you can see waiting. Maybe you've thought about it, but for whatever reason, hesitated stepping into it. And if this is the case, then let's talk for just a few minutes about how to make it your turn and how to put on an it's my turn attitude. How do you put on a why not me and why not now mindset? Well, first, Here's what I've learned. The longer we delay and the more we contemplate the opportunities in front of us, the more daunting they seem and the more unwilling we become. Once upon a time, a psychology professor walked around a stage while teaching stress management principles to an auditorium filled with students. And she raised a glass full of water. Everyone expected they'd be taught the typical glass half empty or glass half full lesson. Instead, with a smile on her face, the professor asked, how heavy is this glass of water that I'm holding? Well, students shouted out answers ranging from eight ounces to a couple of pounds. And she replied, from my perspective, the absolute weight of this glass doesn't matter. It all depends on how long I hold it. If I hold it for a minute or two, it's fairly light. If I hold it for an hour straight, its weight may make my arm ache a little. If I hold it for a day straight, my arm will likely cramp up and feel completely numb and paralyzed, forcing me to drop the glass to the floor. In each case, the weight of the glass doesn't change, but the longer I hold it, the heavier it feels to me. As the class shook their heads in agreement, she continued, your stresses and worries in life are very much like this glass of water. Think about them for a while, nothing happens. Think about them a bit longer and you begin to ache a little. Think about them all day long and you will feel completely numb and paralyzed, incapable of doing anything else until you drop them. Now, do you think this happens to you and me? Maybe you've been holding on to the reasons why you can't or how it's not your turn for so long now. They seem so heavy, you're not apt to pick up the challenge, even though your perceptions are not reality. You know, we get used to a thing, and after staying on our side of our comfort zone for so long, 
When we think about moving to the other side, we seem to bounce up against our own self-made barriers. And this is why opening our eyes to the realities around us is so powerful. During a research experiment, a marine biologist placed a shark into a large holding tank and then released several small bait fish into the tank. As you would expect, the shark quickly swam around the tank, attacked, and ate the smaller fish. The biologist then inserted a strong piece of clear fiberglass into the tank, creating two separate partitions. She then put the shark on one side of the glass and a new set bait of fish on the other. Again, the shark quickly attacked. This time, however, the shark slammed into the glass divider and bounced off. Undeterred, the shark kept repeating this behavior every few minutes to no avail. Meanwhile, the bait fish swam around unharmed in the second partition. Eventually, about an hour into the experiment, the shark gave up. This experiment was repeated several dozen times over the next few weeks. Each time, the shark got less aggressive and made fewer attempts to attack the fish until eventually the shark got tired of hitting the fiberglass divider and simply stopped attacking altogether. The biologist then removed the glass divider, but the shark, interestingly, didn't attack. The shark was trained to believe a barrier existed between it and the bait fish, so the bait fish swam wherever they wished, free from harm. And the truth is, you are strong, you are dangerous, and it's your turn to be the predator and take on the leadership and take on more of what life is offering you. But to do so, you and I need to swim into waters we haven't swum in before, or at least haven't done so in a while. Kurt Warner grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He loved to play football and dreamt of becoming a pro quarterback. And after a successful college career, he tried out with the Green Bay Packers. He thought he would make the team. He didn't. He felt devastated. He later got a tryout with the Chicago Bears, but that didn't work out either. So he got a job as an assistant coach and worked nights at the Hy-Vee Grocery Store in Cedar Falls for $5.50 an hour. This time, he says, tested him like never before. He lost much of his confidence. Maybe football wasn't his thing. Maybe it wasn't his turn. Clearly, the NFL didn't think so because he didn't make the team. But unlike the shark in the tank, he wasn't content to swim on his side of the barriers in life. So he kept his eyes open, and soon he got a job playing quarterback in the Arena Football League. He played for the Iowa Barnstormers. And the funny thing is that when he started playing in this smaller arena league, which is far below the talent of the NFL, he started to feel that maybe it was his turn. In the arena league, he did one thing, win. And he got better and faster and more accurate as a quarterback. In the arena football, he learned to pass with pinpoint accuracy. It was fast-paced, and it forced him to develop a quick release and perfect footwork. There, he won two championships. Outside of football, he became a man of faith. And this faith gave him the sense that his turn was coming. He believed he could compete in the NFL only if given a chance. Finally, seven years after his first tryout at Green Bay, an old man by NFL standards, he got his chance with the Arizona Cardinals. He knew who he was, and he knew what to do. It was his turn. That year, Warner threw for 4,400 yards, 41 touchdowns, and a completion rate of 65%. 
They would go on to win Super Bowl 39. Kurt would become a two-time league MVP. Kurt would say of himself later, I always had confidence. I realized it was my turn. Now, the Apostle Paul once wrote to the Hebrews, cast not away your confidence, which has great possibility of reward. And maybe you've set aside your confidence because you've always seen yourself as not the guy or not leading or not taking things that life has to offer more aggressively. But maybe, like Kurt, it's your turn. I don't know what this might be like in your life, but perhaps it's been a while since you really made a difference doing what you were meant to do. Perhaps you've been trying and trying for a while with little success. Well, if so, take a lesson from Kurt. Don't compare yourself to others. Posture up. Hold on to your confidence because it's your turn. And while we're on that topic, sometimes what keeps us from stepping up to our turn is our constant comparing ourselves to other people. There is no value in comparison. Why? Well, because the world is rife with inequality. This is a fact. You've heard that 80% of the wealth is created by 20% of the people, or 80% of the work in your organization is done by 20% of your workers. And I found this largely true in most circumstances. What this means is life is full of inequity. It means that 80% of us will not measure up to the 20% that are doing, or at least won't measure up at the moment. This means there will always be people around that will be better at something than you. But when we compare, we often become stuck, paralyzed in our ability to act. This lesson was taught to me by Dean, who was injured in an accident and paralyzed from the chest down. Dean says in the weeks following his accident, he was more paralyzed by comparison than he was physically in his accident. You see, after his accident, he was constantly comparing his life with what it used to be. Even more, he compared his life with the lives of those around him. He said this way of living and comparing was miserable. The big change came when he decided to compare himself only with who he was yesterday. When he made this change of view, everything changed. It was then that his real road to recovery began. He realized the quicker you move on to the next thing and focus on the fact that it's your turn, soon the good outweighs the bad. So every minute you spend wishing you had someone else's life is a minute spent wasting yours. The reason we sometimes lack confidence is because we compare our behind-the-scenes life with everyone else's highlight reel. And oftentimes that comparison isn't even based on the truth of what their life consists of. So how do you stop comparing in your life? Well, here are three ways to pivot your thinking. So next time you feel yourself in the comparison trap, you can pivot and put on the right belief window that it's your turn. The first pivot is this. For the most part, the truth is, Many people who succeed have worked exceptionally hard to achieve the skills or results. So instead of comparing and lamenting what others have and you don't, pivot your mindset to, they've worked exceptionally hard for their success. I can do the same thing. Frame it in terms of truth. That more often than not, they have spent the time necessary to have what they have. And you too could choose to do the same. 
to spend the time necessary to achieve what you're looking for. You see, whatever we hold on our belief window or constantly hold in our mind will eventually be what we experience in our life. Where the focus goes, energy flows. If I hold the belief that others are fortunate and I am not, life will likely turn out that way. But if I hold the belief that it's my turn and that it may take hard work, but I can succeed, life will likely turn out that way. The next pivot is this. Confidence, and in many cases success, depends on focus. So many of us fail to achieve because we have so many minor things happening in our life. We fail to choose a major and focus on it. And those who succeed often choose to sacrifice other things to make room for that major remarkable thing. So when comparing, pivot to this perspective. They've chosen to make that a focus. So could I. You see, in life, our focus on too many things does impact our ability and our confidence. It diminishes our ability to succeed at something. Let's look to business for an example. Look at Nokia. In 2007, less than two decades ago, Nokia was the number one mobile phone company in the world. They made 50% of all the profits in the mobile phone industry. No doubt that sometime between the year 2000 and 2007, most of you had a mobile phone made by Nokia. However, today, Nokia is a byword in the business. Nokia was sold to Microsoft at a fraction of its value and only owns a tiny market share of the mobile phone market. Why did they fail? Well, at first, you'd assume it's because they got trounced by the technology of Apple and Samsung. But that's not the real answer. To find the real answer, you have to look inside Nokia. They missed the opportunity because of how they viewed themselves and their focus. They saw themselves as a conglomerate. They made paper, electricity, rubber boots. But there was little value in rubber boots compared to smartphones. You see, they failed to see themselves as the mobile device communications leader and to focus on that business with all their might. And instead, they focused on too many things at once. As a result, they missed the boat and let Apple and Samsung take the lead. Today, Apple is worth 200 times what Nokia is worth. So, if you think it's your turn, learn this lesson. Focus on what's most important to you and let the smaller, minor things go. To take your turn in growing your business, you'll have to give up a few things. To take your turn in getting yourself into shape, you'll have to narrow your focus. Next, to avoid comparison, remember, someone else is dreaming of the things you take for granted. Gratitude turns what you have into enough. You see, when we're grateful for what we have, it doesn't mean we're satisfied or won't go on to do amazing things in life. What it does mean is we can focus on keeping our confidence and keeping our positivity about us. Trust me, we're all human, and it's okay to have a meltdown and wish things were different. Just don't unpack, set up shop, and live there. Cry it out, and then remember what you've got. Be grateful. Return to your confidence and refocus on the fact that it's now your turn. And here's the thing. It really is your turn. It really is. It's so easy to doubt, but it's so powerful to remember. 
things in your life may not even seem like it's your turn. But the minute you put on a, it's my turn attitude, you will feel circumstances and things turn in your favor. I've seen this in my life too many times to think any other way. Now, I was not a great baseball player, but I played for many years. And every player at one point or another in their life faces this exact situation. It's late in the game, and your team is either behind in the score or trying to preserve a narrow lead. There's a runner on base waiting for you to get a hit so they can run the bases and score. It's your turn at the plate. As you begin to walk to the plate, you wouldn't believe the feeling you get as you step up to the plate knowing it's all up to you. There's this sense of fear, yes, but you have goosebumps that it's your turn, that you can win the game with a swing of your bat. And the walk to the plate is a walk of confidence as you tell yourself, you can do this. This is your time. It's your turn to win the game. And I would say the same to you today. It's your turn. You've played in the arena league or the minor league long enough. The major league in your business, in your talent, in your faith, in your relationships is waiting for you to step up. Step up to the plate. Raise your bat. Get ready and swing away. So as we end today, remember, this is your time. It's not only your time, but it's your turn. Don't give away your confidence. And when it's your turn, it doesn't matter if you've been in the back of the line, God will move you to the front of the line and put you where you need to be. So step up to your accession, to your title, to your role, and be who you are meant to be. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become. 